Hello, and welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Jose Estigarraga, Global Head of Reed Smith's International Arbitration Practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights, and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. And with that, let's get started. Welcome back to the Reed Smith Arbitral Insights podcast series. My name is Sashin Kura, and I am the office managing partner for Reed Smith's Middle East business. Arbitration has been called fairly or unfairly the privatization of the justice system. It's, of course, a private, consensual, and largely confidential alternative to litigation as a means of resolving disputes. But it really isn't litigation light, it's not a lesser person's litigation. International arbitration in particular requires an acute grasp and understanding of complex factual, procedural and legal issues in domestic and international settings. Inevitably, preparation is the key to successful arbitration outcomes. Arbitration is a complex process in which you're dealing with persons of a different culture, legal backgrounds, languages and business practices. Today with my colleagues, Alison Aslick and Jane Miles, We've accumulated some real-life examples to illustrate what can go wrong if you fail to prepare adequately for the arbitration process. Yes, hi, everyone. It's great to be here on Arbitral Insights today. Thanks, Sachin. Yes, hi. Good afternoon. Great. Alison, can I start with you? Nobody can begin an arbitration with the wrong name, can they? Well, apparently it has happened. So when we asked our colleagues around the office to share their war stories around arbitration, one of the issues that actually came up on more than one occasion was having the wrong party named in a request for arbitration. So uh, in one of the cases we came across, the wrong respondent entity had been named by the claimant. Now, equally, parties have been known to name the wrong claimant entity. So why is it so important to name the correct parties in a request for arbitration? Well, of course, it's 101. There has to be a valid cause of action against the correct party in order to claim relief. So Satcha, not its parent company, not its subsidiary or its sister company or any other entity. And of course, in arbitration, there must be a valid arbitration agreement between the parties to bring a claim in arbitration in the first place. So, as you said, how can this happen? How can something as seemingly simple as getting the party's names right go so wrong? Well, there seem to be a few reasons. Sometimes it's simply an error where the legal name of the party is misstated in favour of a common name or a trading name. But sometimes a contract has been assigned to another entity or perhaps the party is part of a complex corporate group and the wrong entity in the group has been named. Now, this is exactly what happened in the case involving one of our colleagues. He had an in-house counsel client who had himself prepared the request for arbitration and had accidentally named the wrong respondent in the relevant group of companies. Now, our clients are under so much pressure these days to multitask and get things done very quickly. So you can see how this could happen. So what do you do? Well, thankfully, the Reed Smith lawyer in this case picked up the error almost straight away which was very early in the proceedings and even before the arbitral tribunal had been constituted. So in these circumstances, the decision was made to proactively withdraw the request and refile it, which meant that in this case, the only things lost were a filing fee, about a month's worth of time, 
And of course, there was a degree of embarrassment attached to the error. Now, that said, it could have been much, much worse had the error not been picked up so early. In the very worst case scenario, perhaps nobody might have realised and the parties would then have a final award that couldn't be enforced. Or worse still, the time period to commence an action under the statute of limitations may have passed, which would prevent the erring claimant party from simply restarting the proceedings all over again. So, what other options are available besides withdrawing and refiling a request, which of course will not be a good option if the statute of limitations has passed? Well, one option might be to try and join the correct party into the action, which will depend on the ability to do so under the arbitration rules and will have to be navigated carefully. And what about this? Can a tribunal simply fix the error by substituting the correct party? Well, under English court procedure, there is some facility for a judge to correct a party who is wrongly named by genuine mistake, and a special legal test must be satisfied. Now, there aren't similar procedures set out in popular arbitration rules, so the approach taken by a tribunal will very much depend on the procedural law of the seat, as well as the concern to ensure that the arbitration award is ultimately enforceable. So the moral of the story, if you're a claimant, take very good care to get the parties right in a request for arbitration. If you are a respondent, always check whether the right parties have been named in a request. Of course, it's a very easy win for a respondent who picks up such an error. Though, of course, it probably won't make the lawsuit go away entirely. It will probably just be refiled. Thanks, Alice. So that certainly seems a case of acting too quickly without focus and attention to detail resulting in avoidable mistakes. What, what, what do you think our clients can do to prevent naming the wrong party? Well, that's a good question, Sachin. I mean, this risk can usually be mitigated by a few simple steps. Of course, check the contract. Check the arbitration agreement if it's in a different document. Verify the exact name of the party. And of course, if there are any discrepancies, investigate them. Check the company license. Seek out any assignments. And generally have a good understanding of the corporate structure and the history of the particular contract in question. Excellent. Thank, thank you, Alison. Jane, can I turn to you? You, you have a salutary lesson concerning uh, documentary evidence. Yes, I do, Sachin. Um, my story circulates around the uh, disclosure process. So um, very early on in my career, I was part of a team acting for a defendant engineering company that was being sued for professional negligence. After the document disclosure process had been completed and we were working with the client on the next stage of proceedings, the client mentioned that they had come across a filing cabinet in one of their offices that had accidentally been overlooked during the review of its files in response to the document requests from the claimant. The client, understandably somewhat nervous about the repercussions, explained that they had then checked the documents in the filing cabinet and had discovered some documents that were responsive to the claimant's requests. Given that the disclosure process had been completed, the client was reluctant to come forward and admit its oversight and produce the responsive documents. The client was concerned about how it would look to the judge in the proceedings if it came to light that they'd made this mistake and overlooked the filing cabinet. We explained to the client that they were duty-bound to continue to disclose responsive documents despite the deadline and the timetable for the proceedings having passed. And we also assured the client that this was not as unusual as they may think and that they wouldn't be the first party in legal proceedings to have made such an oversight. And actually, the important thing to do was simply explain what had happened and produce the remaining responsive documents. 
And in this particular case, it was lucky that the documents the client had identified were not damaging to its case, and therefore there were no further potential implications. And as expected, the additional documents were accepted without complaint by the opposing party in relation to the lateness, and there were no further repercussions for the client in the proceedings. The concept of disclosure or discovery, as it's sometimes referred to, is used in common law jurisdictions in both litigation and arbitration, as you and I know, and it's also commonly used in international arbitration, including in civil law jurisdictions, as well as being provided for in the commonly used IBA rules on taking evidence in international arbitration. It might seem like a strange concept to those from civil law jurisdictions unfamiliar with international arbitration, but it is a key part of the proceedings, giving the parties an opportunity to test their opponents' positions and investigate available records and correspondence. Jane, I just I just wonder from from what you're saying, we we as all like arbitration practices recognise it is a necessary part of the arbitral process that the parties must comply with. But how easy is it to get clients to engage with the process of document disclosure and take it seriously? Well, it's never a part of the arbitration proceedings that clients are particularly keen on, I have to confess, purely because of the time-consuming nature of it, not only considering the information the opposing party may have in its possession that may assist their own case, but also having to spend the time responding to the opposing party's requests and search for the documents. Yeah, I mean, I, I can remember as an extreme illustration of that point as a junior practitioner, having explained uh, disclosure obligations to a client, being informed of a unfortunate fire at a document storage depot not long after we explained those obligations. I don't know if you've had anything as extreme. Well, funnily enough, um, there was a, a similar story, but the opposite nature. We um, had a client that, first of all, wasn't quite sure which location they'd stored the relevant project documents in. And then when they did realise the exact location, it turns out there'd been a flood and a significant amount of the documents were irretrievably damaged. Yes. Well, I think at that point we better move on. Alison, let's turn it to a slightly more morbid section here. Um, and Perhaps seldomly considered, the passing away of an arbitrator will have profound consequences for the arbitral process. What are your thoughts and what experiences have you had in this slightly uh, unusual circumstance? Yes, as you said, it is a bit of a, a morbid topic, but um, an interesting one, actually. So, I mean, to the best of uh, my knowledge, this is really quite a, a rare occurrence uh, for an arbitrator to pass away mid-proceedings. But, you know, complex arbitration cases can proceed for years rather than months, so it's certainly not unheard of. Perhaps probably a bit more common is an arbitrator falling seriously ill and having to resign for health reasons. This might actually uh, occur more, perhaps, uh, in the context of COVID-19. So, look, probably the worst time this could happen from the party's perspectives is following an oral hearing, but before the final award is issued. So that would mean that all the witness testimony has been heard, the experts and fact witnesses have been cross-examined, the element of surprise has been completely taken out of the party's litigation strategy. And of course, I mean, the thought of having to redo a hearing would be pretty hard for parties to grapple with because, of course, hearings are not cheap to run. Though, of course, Satchin, I suppose if a party had a really bad day in court, it might not be the end of the world. So look, what happens in such circumstances? Well, the answer will lie in what the relevant arbitration rules say about this, along with the procedural law of the seat. 
So take, for example, the ICC rules issued in March 2017. Article 15 provides that an arbitrator shall be replaced upon death or resignation or where the arbitrator is prevented from fulfilling his or her functions. Now, Article 15.5 expressly contemplates the situation where the final hearing has already occurred, but an arbitrator sadly passes away or is removed in the period before the award is finalised. So what does Article 15.5 say? Well, it provides that subsequent to the closing of the proceedings, that is, after the hearing and closing of any post-hearing submissions, instead of replacing an arbitrator who has passed away or been removed by the court, the court may decide that the remaining two arbitrators shall continue the arbitration. Now, in making this determination, the ICC court will take into account the views of the remaining arbitrators and the parties and other matters it considers appropriate. So, of course, in deciding whether the show may be allowed to go on, at the top of the arbitrators' and parties' minds will be the enforceability of the award, as well as any unfairness that might result from proceeding with a two-person tribunal. So, for example, perhaps the particular arbitrator who is now absent was handpicked because they had uh, a special industry or legal expertise Or maybe the person who's now not there was the most senior arbitrator in an otherwise more junior panel. So really, it's not going to always be an easy decision to proceed with two instead of three arbitrators. But for many parties in this sticky situation, it may well be the preferable option. Of course, a lot's going to depend on the confidence the parties have in the remaining two arbitrators, as well as whether the award could survive procedural challenge upon enforcement. Now, look, all the arbitration rules are slightly different. So, of course, this is an issue that should really be navigated carefully with your legal counsel if it sadly does arise. Yeah, and look, I I think we all would hope that this is a a rare occurrence. I'm I'm interested to know, have you ever been personally involved in a case, Alison, where an arbitrator had to be replaced either because of illness or for any other reason? Well, in fact, I have. Uh, So the arbitrator in that case thankfully didn't pass away. No, this was a case where we had a serious conflict of interest that was uncovered literally on the eve of the hearing. Now, in the end, the other side who had appointed that co-arbitrator gracefully accepted that there was a conflict of interest and agreed that the arbitrator had to be replaced. And I think this is because everyone realised this could jeopardise enforcement of the award. Now, this was very unfortunate for the claimant because the hearing was delayed for another five or so months. Now, as a respondent, we, of course, were not in any particular rush to get to a hearing, but something like this does increase costs to both sides. And in the end, the tribunal apportioned the wasted costs equally between the parties because in this case, of course, no party could be blamed uh, for this unforeseen circumstance. Thanks, Alison. Jane, the evidence of witnesses can be highly effective weapons to prove a case, but what are some of the anecdotes you can share for those listening as working with witness evidence? Well, as you, Alison, and I know, you're absolutely right. Good factual evidence is crucial to a party's case, whether it's from the contemporaneous documents created at the time or from the witnesses of fact themselves who were involved in the particular events. Well thought out, clear witness evidence that tests well in the witness box is extremely valuable and persuasive in support of a case. And a witness shouldn't be only fully engaged in the review of the documents, 
to assist them in the writing of their witness statement, but they also need to be fully prepared to speak to their witness statement in the witness box during the evidentiary hearing. Because ill-prepared, vague, rambling, contradictory witness evidence can conversely be very damaging to a party's case. So the example I want to give you that happened to me a few years ago. We were working on a case, a high-value construction dispute, and one of the witnesses giving evidence during the oral hearing became so nervous, despite the preparation we'd undertaken beforehand, that he panicked, forgot the guidance we'd given him about how to listen to and how to answer the questions put to him, and instead blurted out when he couldn't think of an answer to a question that the witness statement that he had written and signed had not actually been written by him. This was manifestly untrue. The witness had, in fact, spent several weeks answering questions about key issues in the dispute, reviewing his records, preparing his witness statements. And before he and all the other witnesses in the case had signed their witness statements, we as a legal team had set out in an email a reminder that the witness statement needed to be an accurate and comprehensive reflection of what the witnesses were able to recall some several years after the events had taken place, and that only if they were satisfied with the witness statement that they should sign it and send it back to us to serve in the proceedings. The witnesses were also fully aware that they were likely to be asked to speak to their statements in the witness box in due course. And as with all of the witnesses we work with to prepare the witness statements for the proceedings, this witness had also been told that in the event he'd later recalled anything in addition or spotted an error or an inaccuracy in the statement, he was under an obligation to correct or amend the statement accordingly and that this was standard procedure. Having raised no such concerns before entering the witness box, it was a surprise to find him saying that he hadn't written the witness statement that he had. And whilst the false statement he made was initially damaging, in the eyes of the tribunal, counsel for the client was able to address it in re-examination. And we also had a paper trail showing that he had fully participated in the preparation of his witness statement and had understood the intended purpose and use of his witness statement at the time he wrote and signed it. The admission could have been incredibly damaging for the client's case more generally, as well as the weight of the particular evidence he was giving, not to mention our own credibility as legal advisors to the client if we hadn't been better prepared. Oh dear, I, I was grimacing there, uh, Jane, when you were telling that story. I mean, whilst it did seem that the legal team did what they could to prepare, it seems the witness wasn't as prepared for what is, let's be honest, an unusual process. Uh, I'm sure none of us would, would enjoy giving evidence. Um, do you think it's ever possible to be over-prepared as a witness? Yes, absolutely. The converse can also be true. If a witness is coached or just over-prepared, this can result in evidence not coming across as authentic, the end result being that a tribunal will give less weight to the evidence provided in any event. Witnesses aren't expected to be able to recall verbatim conversations that they held years before, and there's no need for them to do that either because they will always have their witness statement and any exhibits or documents they want to refer to uh, provided to them during the course of giving their evidence. All that a witness is ever expected to be able to do is share their best recollection of the events. And they can do that by simply being familiar with their statement and knowing their way around any documents they might be asked to discuss. Yeah, thanks, Jane. So um, there, there you have it. I mean, it's clear international arbitration is a, is a complex process. It, it shouldn't be taken lightly. Many unknown unknowns can emerge. And as we've heard, I think it, it shows that the overarching lesson is that thorough preparation is really the key to reducing the challenges that parties may otherwise face in the management of their arbitrations. From me, Sashin, I would like to thank you for joining us. Jane, Alison. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much.
Thank you. And we hope you will join us again for another Arbitral Insights podcast. Thank you. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email Garaga at jia at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, reedsmith.com, and our social media accounts at Reedsmith LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. All rights reserved. 